Hey everyone, welcome to Embers in the Dark, a podcast that seeks to open up scripture as God's revealed word and um, seek truth, understand truth as he's revealed it, and then apply it to our lives. We'll have sermons and conversations and and a few other different things that just seek to open up and expound on God's word, uh, and again, just to, to bring it into application into our lives. Enjoy. Mark chapter 6. I'm going to uh, probably not stick to my notes. Uh, what it's going to look like is, I don't know if you've ever you know, been at an airport, I'm sure you have, or been in an airplane. Um, we're going to circle a lot before we land. And the reason we'll do that is because we really need to understand um, the crux of this passage. And so what we'll do is I'll talk a lot about the same thing, and it'll seem like I'm repeating myself. I ask your forgiveness. Um, for doing that, uh, just because I want to circle a lot before we land, um, just to make sure we get it, and uh, I might go off on a few tangents, um, I might not, but we'll, we'll, we'll work as the Lord leads. So in Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 6, and I'll read the passage and then we'll look at the context and uh, just a brief synopsis. So Mark chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and disciples followed him. His disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. That last one's a bit of a an anomaly. It's a, it's the start of a new paragraph that leads into the next pericope as well. But we kind of stop at at six a. But anyways, that was one of the tangents I went on. So the overall context, as you know, if you've been with us, is going obviously going back to Mark chapter one. But the surrounding context has to do with faith. Has to do with belief. We go back to. Um, The boat, the storm on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples in the boat. They believe in Jesus. They have faith in Jesus, but he still rebukes them for their lack of faith, for abandoning their their trust in him in the midst of this massive storm that could kill them. In the the face of death, they they turn away from Jesus, or faith in Jesus, from trust in him, that he knows what's best. And again, remember, it's a tangent. Remember, we pointed at Job. And the understanding that Job was in the boat, and there's this massive storm. And so Jesus is God in the boat with these disciples, and they're terrified. But it's also this understanding that, uh, sorry, Jonah, I said Job. We pointed back to Jonah. But it also points back to Job, because Job had all of these things happen to him. And Job had to repent not of his sin, but of his lack of trust in God. His lack of trust in God's goodness in the midst of all of these things. And so that's what we see with the disciples. They, They think they're going to die. And what they're doing is they're not trusting in, they're not having unbelief in Jesus' power to do something. 
what they're, what they're having a problem with is that we're going to die. Like, why are we going to die in this sea? We've got Jesus with us. Why are we going to die? They were, they were losing trust in God's goodness in the midst of that. Anyways, just put that in your back pocket or something. And then we have the demoniac who's cleansed and restored. And what does he do? He clings to Jesus. He holds fast to Jesus in belief. But the townspeople and the herdsmen don't want him. They send him away. They get out. They say, get out of here. We don't want you here. So we've got, again, we've got a, a definition of belief and a definition of unbelief. They saw what Jesus did, but they sent him away. Right after that, we've got Jairus and the woman who believe and hold to Jesus and hope. Again, it's about belief. And now we have, chapter 6, Jesus coming home. And his people reject him, and that rejection is unbelief. Next week, when we look at what happens after, we'll see that Jesus sends out his disciples, and some reject him, and some will accept him. That's just how it goes. It's an understanding of belief and unbelief. Again, going back to what one of Mark's major themes is, is insiders and outsiders. Insiders and outsiders. The insiders are those who hold fast to Jesus, even in the midst of, of a lack of faith like the disciples. They still hold fast to him, like the demoniac who holds fast to Jesus, even though uh, things have gone really bad. He wants to go with Jesus. Jesus tells him to stay. It's insiders and outsiders. Even looking at his family, Jesus doing with, with that man who came down through the roof and healed him, his family, he says his family are the ones who are inside with him, but his real family is outside the house. Same thing here in chapter 6. His real family is his disciples. But he's in his hometown, and they are the outsiders. The people who he grew up with, the people he knew, they are the outsiders. Anyways, that's, that's our immediate context. What we want to do, what I'm trying to help us understand is that as we read scripture, it's almost reading it with like a camera lens that zooms in and zooms out. We want to go in and look at the details, but then zoom back out and look at the big picture, and then zoom back in and look at some more of the details, and then it's just a form of hermeneutic. And so Jesus comes home to Nazareth to teach in the synagogue. Again, they're his friends, his family, his neighbors. They hear his wisdom. So this is an important point. They hear his wisdom, they see his mighty works, and they've no doubt heard about everything he's been doing. So he's about 30 years old, he does ministry for three years, and then is crucified around 33. But so for these three years, he's been all over the place, around Galilee, a, a lot near Nazareth. Uh, I was going to draw a map and all that, but I'll just forgo that for now for time's sake. But Jesus has been traveling around the Sea of Galilee, which Nazareth is near. It's not on the sea, but he's been around. So all these people in Nazareth have heard about him, just like Jairus and just like the woman from the last chapter. They've heard of Jesus. And their response is, we know this guy. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the guy who worked with his dad, laboring with their hands to build houses and other things out of stone and wood? Like, where did he get these things from? How is he able to do this? Where does this wisdom come from? Isn't his brothers like these other yahoos over here? Like, there's, why, is there, why are we looking at Jesus as being somebody special? Their response is offense. This is what we see. And in verse 3, they took offense at him. 
They are offended. They are put off, as it were. And this is how Mark, and how we need to see how Mark, defines their unbelief. Their unbelief is defined as taking offense at Jesus. The crux of this passage, the most important point of this passage, is understanding their unbelief. What it means for them to not believe. And so interpreting this passage correctly, and therefore understanding this passage correctly, hinges on how we define the word unbelief. If we miss the correct definition, we will misunderstand the passage and end up holding some dangerous theological errors. They are offended. This is how Mark defines their unbelief. They take offense. This is what we'll do, is we'll unpack that and look at how, how we have to look at this passage and how not to look at it. And again, we'll circle for a bit. So first, the first thing we'll do is define their unbelief. We'll define their unbelief. But the first part of that is actually, again, kind of recapping from last week, the question, what is biblical belief? What is biblical belief? And again, going back to last week, we looked a bit at definitions and how definitions are important and how the world defines things is not always how the Bible defines things. Belief, according to the world, means that you believe something exists. So, we don't think about it unless we really start to think about it. But when we say that we believe something, even when we say we believe in Jesus, what we really mean is that we believe he exists. We believe that he was there. We believe that God exists. We believe that there's a God out there somewhere. We believe that that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus died on the cross. We believe these things. In the same way, now it's a bit different, but in the same way we can say, again, that we believe in Sasquatch. We've seen footprints. We've done this. We've been in the woods and seen some crazy things. When we say, according to the world's definition, that we believe in something, Jesus and Sasquatch are on the same level. We believe in Jesus. We believe in God. We believe that he was there. We believe these things. We believe Sasquatch, if you do. If you don't, that's fine. Um, I, I, I don't. <laughs> Anyways, defining words is important. And so what does it mean to believe? When we say we believe in Jesus, what does it mean? When the Bible says believe in Jesus with your whole heart and your whole mind and your whole strength, when it says believe in Jesus and you shall be saved, when it says believe and you will have eternal life, what does that mean? It cannot mean, that's, this is what we'll end up summarizing, it cannot mean that I just believe he exists. And it cannot mean in the same way that I believe Sasquatch exists. And inversely, unbelief, therefore, cannot mean that just means we don't believe he exists. And this is the point of this passage. And we'll get there. Biblical belief, just briefly, is more than intellectual assent, which is this. I believe Jesus exists. I believe Sasquatch exists. That's intellectual assent. I'm saying I just believe it. I believe that he is there and that he exists. But biblical belief, again, means clinging to that reality. As Gerhard Voss says, it's not just holding to an idea or holding to the truth as an abstract. It's actually concerned with the God of that truth. Saying, I believe, in Je I believe that Jesus exists is a lot different than saying, 
Lord, I'm yours. And when the Bible talks about belief, it's that second definition. Lord, I'm yours. Save me. That is biblical belief. As J.I. Packer says, it's hearing, noting, and doing what God says. Biblical belief is not simply believing in God's existence, because that's the current meaning of the word. And what I hope is that we understand a little more about that when we look at unbelief. So let's look at unbelief. When we go back to, to Mark, when we look at this passage, they are in a state of unbelief. It says that right there. Jesus marveled, verse 6, Jesus marveled at their unbelief. And so, if we take their unbelief as the world's definition, it doesn't work. Because we can't say, well, they didn't believe that Jesus existed. They saw him. They heard him. Not only that, they saw his miracles. He was right there in front of them. And so their unbelief cannot be that they did not believe he existed. You follow me? Does that make sense? That's the logic. Their unbelief is not that they did not believe he existed. He's right there. It was if, I'm going to be silly again. It was if Sasquatch walked in or a Yeti, you know, abominable snowman walked in. And we said, no, no, we don't, we don't believe in Sasquatch, so you're going to have to leave. Like, it, would, it wouldn't work. Right? It wouldn't, it wouldn't work. It's just not reasonable. It's not logical. Their reaction is, this is their unbelief. Their reaction is, isn't this the carpenter? Aren't his brothers and sisters right here? Don't we know this guy? How is that? Is he doing these things? They were offended by him. This is what defines their unbelief. Taking offense at Jesus. They heard his wisdom. They saw his works. And they took offense. This is their state of unbelief. Taking offense at Jesus. Again, he's right, he's right there. Their unbelief is not defined as not believing in him. Unbelief is not, I don't believe in Jesus. Unbelief is, I want nothing to do with Jesus. And we'll unpack this a little more. But I'll say it again. Unbelief is not, I don't believe in Jesus. Unbelief is, I want nothing to do with Jesus. And if you're with us on Wednesday night in Bible study, this will be familiar to you. But we'll look at Romans chapter 1 and Psalm 14 and Psalm 19. Uh, you can turn there if you want. I'll, I'll basically just summarize what's going on. But um, you can follow along. I'll go to Romans 1 first. Unbelief is, at its root, a denial of God, rather than the simple surface issue of not believing in God's existence. The reason people say, I do not believe in God, is not because truly deep down they don't really believe that he exists. It's because they don't want him. This is what the Bible says. And, you know, that's what I hold to, not so much the world. Unbelief at its root, at its cause, is, is a denial of God. 
So in Romans 1, if you're there, Romans 1, verses 18 to 32 is kind of the section that I'll be looking at, mostly verses 18 to 22. But what Paul is saying, and he's kind of having a commentary on Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is the heavens declare the glory of God. Voice to voice pours out speech. Psalm 19 is basically general revelation, saying there's a creation out there, and creation points to the fact that there's a creator. In a sense, there is a work of art, and that work of art shows that there was someone who created it. And as people, we are meant to look up to the heavens and see the stars and see the sun. We are meant to look at trees. We are meant to look at the ocean. We are meant to look at the wheat fields and the canola fields and the mountains and say, where did all this come from? There has to be someone there who has done this beautiful thing. And so picking up on this, what Paul says in Romans 1 is that because of our sinfulness and our selfishness, we deny that. What he says in Romans 1 is that people suppress that truth. As people, it's, it's different for us as, as believers, but the world out there, we'll say, and, and kind of make a general statement, the world out there looks at creation and knows that there is a God out there who has eternal power and majesty. They know. That's what the Bible teaches us. They know. No matter how much they deny it, they know. But that they suppress that truth in order to live their own lives. And so they are in a state of unbelief. And so the point is, at core, at its root, unbelief is not just saying, I don't believe God exists. At its root, at the core of the onion, beneath all of the layers, unbelief is the denial of God, the suppression of truth, of the truth of God, so that we may hold on to our own truth. Unbelief is saying, I don't want him, I want me. That is unbelief. And this is what we see in Mark 6. These people in Jesus' hometown are in a state of unbelief, and Jesus can do nothing there. And again, it's not because they don't believe he exists. He's right there. Their belief is not dependent on him being there. Their belief is not dependent on what they see empirically, with empirical evidence. They see him. They know him. They hear him. They see the works of wisdom that he's doing. The works of miracles and speaking with wisdom. Their unbelief is they don't want him. They take offense. And this is why Jesus could do no work there. Not because they didn't believe hard enough or have enough faith that he could do it. It's that they did not want him to do it. That was our second point. They do not want him to do it. It is not a question of the power of their faith but of their desire to attach themselves to this lowly carpenter. It is not a question of their power of belief in him, of belief that he exists, but of desire for who he is and of their commitment to him. The Old Testament speaks of this a lot. The Lord rebukes the Israelites a lot for this type of unbelief. 
And he calls it hard, hardness of heart. Stiff-necked people. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts are so hard. Here I am doing all these things. It's not that there's a lack of evidence. You see it, but you don't want it. You stiff-necked people, you want it your own way. This is the state of unbelief. This goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Has God really said? Well, yeah, God said. And then it's a slippery slope to the point where we start to lose what God has said and start to trust in what we have said. And then we get to the point where we say, well, that looks good. Fruit looks good. It's good for eating. The tree is good. It's not rotten. That's good. According to my own eyes and my own wisdom, that's good. Has God really said, don't eat the fruit? Yeah, he did. But then Adam and Eve said, well, that looks good. Must be good, so let's do it. It's a denial of God. Unbelief is a denial of God. Back in Mark 6, what do we see? They did not want Jesus around. They didn't want him. They were fine with who he was when they knew him. They were fine with him as a carpenter. They were fine with him as Mary's son. They were fine with him as, as Jude and, and Joseph and Jonas uh, and uh, I'm missing one. And Simon. They were fine with him as their brothers and his sisters. They were fine with Jesus as they knew him growing up. They were fine with their traditions, their comforts, their histories, their systems. They took offense at Jesus because he came to bring truth. Jesus, as he truly is, this is why we sang, Be Thou My Vision, not be all else to me, save that thou art. It's a prayer. Lord, don't be anything to me other than what you truly are. And we see it here, our propensity. We do not want Jesus as he truly is. Because Jesus, as he truly is, makes us uncomfortable. Just like we see here with the town of Nazareth. They did not want Jesus as he truly is because he made them uncomfortable. Again, it wasn't that they didn't believe hard enough or have enough faith. They saw him, they heard him, and they rejected him. The Jews are in a state of unbelief. All through Scripture, all through the New Testament, all through the Gospels, the Jews are in a state of belief. Why? Not because they didn't see or hear Jesus. Not because they didn't see his wisdom. But they didn't want him. That is their state of unbelief. And the reason Jesus could do no work there was because they didn't want him to. And so this is important in understanding this definition. Just quick tangent. If we misunderstand what it means by unbelief here, and we take it to mean that they just didn't believe that Jesus could do it, or they didn't have enough faith that he was there and he was able, or they just didn't believe in his existence hard enough. This is the origins of the prosperity gospel. This is the origins of the word of faith movement that says, just believe 
and it's yours. If you don't get it, you don't have enough faith. This is the origins of the prosperity gospel where we can take a verse like this and say, well, see, Jesus could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. And if we take the understanding of unbelief as they just didn't believe in Jesus and that he could do it, then we have, then we have an answer. Then the prosperity gospel is real and true. But once you start to look at the actual passage and the context and the meaning of the word, the, the prosperity gospel just has no leg to stand on. Because unbelief has nothing to do with the people believing that Jesus existed, believing that he could do it, believing that he had wisdom. Their unbelief is rejection. Again, at the core, unbelief is denial, rejection of God. They were offended, they were repelled, they did not want him. But it's hard because our world is against us. I've got three girls. I'm not super ashamed to say, but I've watched a lot of, you know, girly cartoons. And a lot of them, even, unfortunately, even Christian ones, Christian ones have words like, just believe and you can do it. Just believe hard enough and it will be yours. Just believe and you can be anything. But Jesus comes to scandalize us. To break apart our systems. To break apart the world. He comes to bring his truth. To upend the truth of the world that has so infiltrated our lives. The biblical definition of belief, again, at its core is a denial of God, a rejection of God. Let's land and apply this. When Jesus comes and they take offense at him, this is the first, the first point, when Jesus comes and, take, takes, and they take offense at him, the Greek word there is scandalizo. And you can kind of put together the picture of, of what words we get out of scandalizo. They were scandalized. These people were scandalized by this Jesus. They took offense at him. They did not want him as he is. They wanted him as they knew him. And so the first point is that when Jesus comes, he will come to scandalize us. He will come to put us to offense. And as believers, the reason we take offense is because we have built up our own systems and our own traditions, and we do not want them upended. We do not want them uprooted. We want to do our own thing. We want to do what we've always done. And when the word of God comes, when Jesus comes as the word, that is we are scandalized. In the same way that Jesus scandalized and offended the people of his hometown, so when the word comes, it scandalizes us. We can do one of three things. When the word comes as believers, we can do one of three things. We hear the word and are repelled by it or offended by it and we turn away. It's one option. Like unbelievers, we hear the word and we say, no, that's fine, I don't want to do that. 
And we are not immune to this because we see it all through Scripture, that God's people do this. This is why Israel, the northern kingdom, was destroyed. This is why Judah, the southern kingdom, was destroyed. This is why there were two kingdoms in the first place, is because they denied and rejected the word of God. And so, like unbelievers, when the word comes, we reject it. And we reject it because the truth offends us. The second thing we can do when the word of God comes is we can hear and we can stay neutral. We can do nothing. We just kind of sit on the fence, hang out. You say, yeah, you know, I get that. I understand what you're saying. I don't know. I'm, I don't know. And I have Joel Osteen in my head because Joel Osteen did a Larry King episode. And Larry King, every time somebody comes on to Larry King, a Christian, he asks them, well, do unbelievers go to hell? And every time, except once that I've seen, every time these Christians come on, they waffle. And so Joel Osteen was asked this question. And he says, well, I don't know. I don't know. You know, there's good people out there and not everybody. I don't know. He just kept saying those three words. I don't know. And when the word comes, this is what we do. We are neutral. We sit on the fence, non-committal, and we say, well, I don't know. We know it's true. We know it's right. But we hold off because, I don't know. That's too hard. I don't think I could do that. Or that might, you know, upset some people. The third option, just so you know, I'm, I'm in that second one most of the time. That's where most of us kind of hang out. Is, is neutrality. We, we, we care about each other. We don't want to, you know, upset anybody. We care about each other. We want to be nice. Well, we're Canadians, you know, for the most part. We say sorry all the time. We want to be neutral. We don't want to upset anybody. And so as Christians, that's where we hang out most of the time. The third thing we can do is hear and obey. And this is where the cost lies. We see the truth. We know the cost. And we pay it. We hear, we believe, and we act. And again, most of us sit in this neutral category. Why? Because it's safe. It's secure. It's comfortable. We don't have to make people feel bad. We sit on the fence because we want a sense of unity. And so the point is that that's what needs to be repented of, is that those first two positions. When the Lord comes and we take offense because he's told us the truth, are we going to say no? Are we going to say okay, but I don't know? Or are we going to hear and obey? I can't answer that. That comes down to each one of us individually, in every circumstance. Along with that, I've only got one other point and I'll end with that. But following up from that is the cost. We talk about revival, but we don't really want it. And the reason we don't re want revival is because it'll rip everything apart. 
It's really easy to stand up in a pulpit, stand in the corridors and say, yeah, we need revival. We want revival. We want the Spirit to come, to be poured out on His people. We want the Lord to come. But we don't want that. Because revival will rip everything apart. It will tear down our pretty little man-made religion and expose our sins and expose our systems for what they are. In short, revival destroys what man has made and puts God back in his place. And this is unbelief. This is why Jesus can do no work, because of unbelief. And it isn't that we do not believe in him. It is that he has spoken and we say no. Our unbelief is the rejection of the word of God. Our unbelief is a rejection of the person and the work of Christ. Because we like our pretty little man-made religions and our traditions and our systems. And we don't want revival because revival will come and destroy what we have made. The second point, the last point is the gospel of offense. And this isn't in my notes, but Soren Kierkegaard talks about this really well. He talks about how Christ causes offense on both sides. Now, I, I don't agree with everything Kierkegaard said. He was, he was a Danish Christian um, and uh, was fighting a lot of apathy at his time uh, in 18th, 19th century Denmark. People were just professional Christians. And that, so he, what he was railing against was disingenuineness. Uh, people weren't being genuine believers. They just kind of followed, followed the crowd. And so that's what he was railing against. And so what he talked about a lot was the offense of Jesus on both sides. The offense that unbelievers have and they turn away. And the offense that we as believers have, but we turn in. And the gospel is the gospel of offense. We talked about it a bit this morning in Sunday school. But in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are saved, it is the power of God. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To the Greeks, it is a stumbling block, a rock of offense. To the Jews, sorry, it is a stumbling block and a rock of offense. To the Greeks, it is foolishness. To the Jews, in their state of unbelief, the cross is an offense, which is exactly what we've seen here in Mark 6. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, your salvation has to do with you having God do a work in you and you believing a foolish, foolish message. God choosing you for his purposes. Not you choosing God for your purposes, but God choosing you for his purposes. The biblical gospel says that your salvation has to do with God's glory, not your inherent worth. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. God didn't look at you and say, now there's a person I want on my team. There's a person who's going to just help us win the game, you know, to use a silly sports analogy. That person's strong and good and faithful, and I need them, so I'm going to save them. No, 
What God said is, there is somebody who is nothing. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to save the foolish. We're going to save the beggars. We're going to save the sinful scum of the earth. Why? Because no flesh shall glory in my sight. We are going to save the foolish to tear down the wise. We are going to save the beggars to bring down the, the powerful and the rich. And we are going to save the sinful scum of the earth to bring down the self-righteousness of the world. Because no flesh shall glory in my sight. And their salvation and their joy and their eternal life will bring to nothing the power of the world. And this is the offense of the gospel. We are saved not because we have done something, not because we have an inherent worth, not because we are awesome, and God loves us so. We are saved for God's purposes of His glory. And we do have joy, and we do have eternal life, and we do have salvation. But the offense is that it is not man-centered and bottom-up. The offense is that God has said, and we believe. Not that we have so acted and so believe. The offense, as Jesus says in John 6, is that the flesh gives birth to flesh, and the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Only those whom the Father draws to me will come to me. It is the offense because God says, I have done this. And we as people want to hold to the fact that we have done this. And so when the truth comes, it rips apart what we have made. And we can either be offended and say, no thanks. Or we can be offended and say, yes, Lord, thou sayest. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the soberness of it, the seriousness of it. We thank you that even in the midst of so much truth and light, we hold to the fact that we are your people. That there is nothing that can separate us from your love, not because of who we are and what we have done, but because of who you are and what you have done. And so we hold fast to your promises. We hold fast that in Christ there is now no condemnation. Lord, come and work in us. Bring us from a place of denial. Bring us from a place of neutrality. Bring us to a place of obedience. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Embers in the Dark. Enjoy your week.